AQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Uh, yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the Internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 155, and today is Friday, February 12, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the G-Man. And I'm in the studio here in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. Radio Joe Hughes is participating from Studio C in Indian Lake, PA. Hi, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Okay. And the intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is here in the studio at the controls. Hey, Cliff. Cool. Okay, today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with today's guest, Michael Kerner, on the subject of cleaning chemistry, a What's News segment with a special surprise guest host, and the Roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman's Help, have been working on the IEQRadio.com website, adding to the website and blog every week after the show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IEQ Radio and from IEQ Training Institute, and we hope you like the new look and the improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, simply dial 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Then you just press 1 and join the show. You can download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. And you can get the, two, uh, the show from iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC continuing education credits, ACAC renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. Uh, my email is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iqtraining.com. All right, uh, how about trivia time? Congratulations. Go out to John Lepotier of Microshield Environmental Services in Winter Springs, Florida, for answering last week's trivia question. Uh, the trivia question posed, uh, we wanted to know the author of the Handbook of Pest Control, and John correctly answered it. The author was Arnold Malice. Uh, John's gift of 200 Legends Brands points is in the mail on the way to him. Listeners, win a cool prize by outcompeting your fellow IAQ radio folks and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. 
Sports.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, February 12, 2010. Because our guest is a chemist, uh, today's question comes from the field of chemistry. The trivia question is as follows. Which type of matter has a definite volume but no definite shape? Which type of matter has a definite volume but no definite shape? Okay, let's do his intro music. Antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercanium, molybdenum and magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium and tantalum, technetium, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Michael Kerner joined Legends Brands at the beginning of 2009. Mike supports product development and introduction of Legends Brands chemical products, prepares technical documentation, and provides technical support to our customers. Mike recently completed work on a carpet technician manual that is the basis for Legend Brands IICRC certification class in the carpet care field. Prior to joining Legend Brands, Mike served as senior scientist for Service Master Clean and prior to that provided technical support for Aramark Management Services. Mike has an undergraduate degree in chemistry from Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois, and has a master's degree in chemistry from Purdue University in West Lafayette. Indiana. Good afternoon, Mike, and thank you for joining us on IQ Radio. Hi, Cliff. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay. Well, Michael, um, do you need to be a brainiac to understand chemistry concepts? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, there, it's like with any other field. There are some concepts in chemistry that are very straightforward because we see them every day. Other concepts are really, really odd and, and kind of difficult to understand. Um, probably the, the easiest concept is uh, the, the old chemist standards. It really goes into cleaning, which is like dissolves like. And everybody's familiar with oil and water, for example, that oil and water don't mix, that oil and uh, saline do mix. Um, and so uh, those kind of concepts we see around us, and so they're easy to understand. Uh, other concepts like, you know, the structure of the atom or the um, the size of the atom is, is a lot trickier. But for the person that's doing cleaning, um, a lot of the chemical concepts are really pretty straightforward. Um, is this a hard question or a simple question? You know, what is a chemical? What is a chemical? Well, again, it's a, uh, on the surface, it's a very easy question, but... In, in context of how people use it, it's often difficult. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, basically, any matter that exists is, from the chemist's definition, a chemical. Uh, so everything from the air that we breathe to your fingernails to the linoleum on a floor to uh, dust on a wall is all considered a chemical. When you have a person that is, is not a chemist, they tend to think of a chemical as uh, a synthetic material, something that's been fabricated in the laboratory or in a refinery or something like that. And so the, the chemist will view chemicals as one thing, but to the, the layman, uh, the non-scientists, they tend to view chemicals as something else. And, of course, these days the word chemical itself 
uh, invokes uh, a certain amount of fear because people don't understand the effects of, of different types of chemicals. Um, I guess is dirt the chemical, and it, you know, is there some you know what is the nature of dirt or soil? Yeah, that's another great question, um, and one you know again can be answered at a simple level, and uh, again at a very complex level. Um, dirt is a chemical. Uh, again, anything that, as we said before, anything that's matter, anything that has atoms, molecules, substance, uh, is is considered a chemical. Dirt itself, of course, is kind of interesting because we usually think of dirt as, say, the soil that might be tracked in um, from shoes uh, from the outside in, inside a building. But if you think about it a little more deeply, uh, dirt could almost be defined as any kind of contaminant that should not be there. And maybe a real uh, simple example would be if I have a... Uh, a normal living room, for example, and I have a little bit of dust that's gotten in that's not considered a particular problem. It's not considered a dirty room. If, however, I'm in charge of a Class 10 clean room where they're doing high-level fabrication of microcomputer chips, for example, um, several particles of dust is considered horribly dirty, and that's, that's a significant issue. Uh, likewise, if we have a certain amount of moisture in a room, um, that's usually considered normal, depending on what part of the country you're in and what time of the year it is. But uh, again, to use a silly example, if you've got a flood coming into your into your living room, uh, then that water is considered a, a dirty contaminant, and you don't want to have that. So it's 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 kind of an interesting question because it can be answered both on a simple and a complex question, a simple and complex level. Ultimately, it depends uh, really on what the building is trying to do and what you're trying to use it for. Um, so you've got either dirty or less dirty conditions depending on the circumstances. You know, a lot of times we hear the word solvent, and I think sometimes it. Um, well, how would you define the word solvent, Mike? What's the word solvent mean? Yeah, great. Another good question. Um, uh, and it's another one of those questions that uh, tends to have a different uh, connotation depending on the person that's using it. Um, again, from the chemist's perspective, uh, a, a solvent is simply a material that dissolves something else. And the solvent that uh, most of us are accustomed to uh, thinking about and using all the time is water. Uh, actually, water is a phenomenally good solvent. Um, in many ways, it's a very, very unusual solvent. Uh, it dissolves things like sugar. It dissolves things like um, uh, alcohol. Um, it dissolves a lot of the salts that uh, are part of our body, our, uh, our blood, our plasma, our tears, uh, are all water-based, and so it can dissolve just a huge number of materials. And we often don't think of water as a solvent. I think when most people, uh, especially the layman, thinks of a solvent, they're usually thinking of an organic solvent that uh, usually has a strong smell, that is usually petroleum-based, although more and more these days, um, the derivation of solvents, of organic solvents, is becoming... Um, more um, non-petroleum-based, and these types of solvents are usually much better at dissolving things such as plastics, such as, uh, say, pigments that you might find in paint, um, such as resins. So uh, those kind of organic solvents uh, will, will tend to be more oily-based material. The, the application in cleaning, of course, is that uh, we know that we have a lot of different types of dirt. We talked about dirt a moment ago. And some types of soils are uh, very water-based, such as Kool-Aid, uh, such as wine. And uh, water can do a good job dissolving a lot of that. But there's a lot of other uh, soils, such as um, road tar, such as chewing gum, candle wax, that don't respond to things like water. And so we tend to use uh, a variety of solvents everything from alcohol to uh, materials called glycol ethers to materials like aromatic solvents like xylene uh, to chlorinated solvents uh, for different types of cleaning applications. Joe? Mike, 
This is Joe Hughes, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's been interesting so far. I have a quick follow-up. You used the term organic, and I know there's organic chemistry and there's inorganic chemistry. Maybe we could, you know, quickly um, go over for the listeners what you mean when you say organic as a chemist. Yeah, yeah. Another another interesting question, and it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is the... Um, the varying definitions that we have for words. Um, solvents, of course, is one that we talked about. As far as um, the, uh, the chemist is concerned, uh, organic has a, a really a very, very specific definition. Um, and there's kind of an interesting history behind it. The, uh, the chemist refers to organic basically as any molecule, any substance that contains carbon. Uh, so, for example, methane, uh, methane gas, natural gas, has one carbon, four hydrogens, that's considered an organic material. Uh, something like uh, the alcohol that's part of mineral, of, of, of spirits, of distilled spirits, of, of wine or, or beer, uh, contains two carbon atoms, and so it's considered organic. Now, it, that, that name came about because at one time, uh, decades, in fact, uh, centuries ago, chemists believed that all um, carbon-based materials had to be derived from a living thing. Um, so that was sort of the historical background of that particular term. Now, in our modern, uh, say, non-chemist uh, terminology, organic is much more likely to be applied to a specific uh, derivation of material. And uh, in, in some areas, uh, some industries, there are very specific definitions of organic uh, so, for example, organic foods, which would then have a limitation on the amount of, say, synthetic preservative or pesticide or herbicide that's allowed to be in them. So when uh, our customers, our end customers, building owners, for example, think of organic, they usually think of some sort of plant-derived material that has not been exposed to a lot of synthetic chemistry. You're saying that, um, let me just get this right, because this is a tough question for a lot of people who, you know, come to classes, they say that organic materials contain carbon, but I guess there is it possible some synthetics also contain carbon, is that correct? Oh, sure, absolutely. Okay. For example, um, and it's a great question, if you get something like uh, polyethylene plastic, you know, the, the saran wrap that we use to cover food all the time, that's a carbon-based material. Um, now, another interesting example would be something like vanilla. And, of course, vanilla, we all know, is a, is a very pleasant uh, fragrance and flavoring. And uh, vanilla uh, is, is an organic material, contains carbon. Organic also, in the sense, it can be extracted from the vanilla bean, and that's just an organic extract. But vanilla, as a molecule, can also be very nicely synthesized in the laboratory. And as a result, you can have synthetic vanilla, which is chemically absolutely identical to the vanilla that you could uh, isolate from the vanilla bean. And there's multiple examples. Uh, citric acid, uh, vitamin C are all examples of organic molecules that can either be derived from a plant or can be synthesized in the laboratory. Mike. I've got another one if you want. Okay. Go, 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 ahead. go ahead, Joe. You can ask I another. could talk to Mike all day here. All right, what, what's the difference between a soap and a detergent, Mike? Okay. Um, a, a, a soap is actually one, it's a specific uh, chemical molecule, and it was originally derived uh, almost by accident years ago, a uh, very specific kind of chemical reaction where you take originally uh, animal fat, and it was uh, cooked up with a uh, with water that had been filtered through uh, ash from burning wood. Uh, the water that's that's mixed with the ash and filtered out is really highly alkaline, and maybe we'll talk about pH a little bit later on. But it's an alkaline material, and when you have an alkaline material that is in contact with a with an animal fat or with many types of vegetable fats there's a specific chemical reaction called saponification. Uh, the, the fat then gets converted into a material called a soap. And what a soap actually is, 
and here's where you start getting into some weird terminology, but um, things like animal fats are called fatty acids. They're a classification of uh, chemicals called carboxylic acids. It's kind of a strange name, but that's, that's what chemists call it. And when you go through this bonification reaction, you get what's called a sodium soap of the fatty acid. It turns out that soaps have some very, very nice cleaning characteristics. When we talked about water being a solvent before, uh, and we're going to stray off the topic a little bit, but uh, water is a really nice solvent, but it has some limitations in terms of its cleaning ability. Um, it doesn't wet out surfaces very well. It doesn't foam up enough to uh, be able to wet out surfaces or lift particulate soil off of a surface. Uh, it doesn't um, remove uh, greasy soils very well. And soaps uh, do have a very, very nice characteristic uh, in, in that way. Uh, they do a great job at emulsifying oil, uh, blending oil in such a way that it can be flushed off a surface. Um, it foams very nicely. Uh, it wets out very nicely. Um, helps us to, uh, to clean surfaces very nicely. And it's one of the very first cleaners that was used in history. Um, now, most people are aware that soap has got some limitations. Um, the biggest limitation is that it doesn't get along very well with hard water. Uh, the calcium and the magnesium do nasty things to soap and cause coagulation, curding, and, and the well-known soap scum that you see in your bathtub. Um, so as chemists have looked at different types of cleaners, uh, they came across another class of molecule called surfactants, which is actually a, a abbreviation of the term surface active agent. Chemically, they're very, very similar in structure to soap, but they have a lot more uh, resistance to hard water, and there's a huge number of them. There's literally hundreds of different types of detergents that can be uh, customized to a lot of different specialty cleaning applications. So, and they're derived from an awful lot of different materials, a lot of different types of chemistries. But in general, a detergent would be a synthetic um, uh, a synthetic surfactant or surface active agent of some sort. When you say, I'm sorry, Cliff, give me one more real quick. When yeah. you say wet out, could you could you kind of explain that a little better? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably the best example you know, that most coiners could, would be familiar with is if you, say, take a drop of water um, and put it on a, on a carpet that's been uh, treated with, say, a stain-resist product, what will happen is that drop of water tends to beat up on the carpet. It doesn't penetrate in. It doesn't, doesn't wet out. Um, on the other hand, if you take that same drop of water and mix it with a little bit of detergent, put it on the carpet, it'll tend to wet out or to soak into that surface uh, very easily. Another example that people use uh, to show the same effect is if you take a drop of water, put it on a penny, uh, the drop of water will just beat up. It'll form a, a very discreet, uh, well easily seen drop. You take a little teeny bit of detergent of almost any type, put it on that drop of water, and that drop of water soaks across the entire surface of the penny. So uh, the, the wetting out is the process of taking water and being able to not have it a drop, but to kind of sheet it out so that it covers an, a surface very easily. And when we're trying to clean, especially a complex surface like, say, um, uh, grout in tile or a carpet or an upholstery piece where you've got an awful lot of surfaces, it's important for the cleaning solution, whatever it happens to be, to get down into all those little crevices so it can get in physical contact with the dirt and, and, and then be able to flush it back out. Thank you. Mike, can you differentiate for our listeners the difference between what is known as dry cleaning and what is known as wet cleaning? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, again, it kind of goes back to some um, historical uh, nuances. Usually when people think about wet, uh, they're thinking about water and water-based solutions. So if we think about a laundry detergent and we think about, say, a dish detergent or a carpet detergent, uh, typically, you've got water with different types of detergent components built into it, 
and that does uh, a great job cleaning. Now, one of the other problems with water is that not only does uh, water not wet out very well, doesn't uh, emulsify oily soils very well, but uh, it also has this nasty habit of wrecking certain types of materials. And, you know, cleaners are all familiar with that. Uh, probably, the, you know, one of the best examples would be a, a textile piece that has a dye that happens to uh, be very water-soluble. So if you were to try to clean, and a great example is uh, Haitian cotton. Uh, the tannins that are in the cotton dissolve in water very nicely, and if you try to use a water-based detergent, um, you, you tend to get nasty things happening, such as the tannins bleed all over the place and you wreck the appearance of the piece. There's other types of materials, such as cottons, which will shrink when they get wet. Um, you get things like woods, which can uh, warp when they get wet. And so over the years, different types of organic solvents that have very little water in them, and perhaps even a trace of water, uh, can be used very nicely on that type of cleaning, less dry cleaning, to be able to remove a lot of really oily, greasy soils uh, or to remove uh, soils from the surface that just can't stand contact with water. The, uh, the dry cleaning, the, the liquid army cleaning business, uh, really grew up around that because they used the different types of non-water-based solvents either to protect sensitive clothing or just to remove a lot of oily soil. So in, in order to summarize that thought, so would we be correct to say that dry doesn't mean not using a liquid? Dry just means or can mean using a liquid other than water for the cleaning. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's, it's, it, you know, uh, you made a good point there. Certainly the use of a liquid uh, is, is usually associated with dry, with uh, weather dry cleaning. Um, but another thing that's happening, uh, sort of a trend in the marketplace, is to use um, things like uh, there's material called supercritical uh, fluids, such as liquefied carbon dioxide, which actually also does a great job cleaning. Uh, it's a liquid. Carbon dioxide is a liquid only at elevated pressures. Um, so in a way, it's kind of sort of uh, dry cleaning, but has some really nice characteristics as well. But yeah, in general, what you're saying is true. When you have uh, dry cleaning, it doesn't necessarily mean no liquid. It means no water. Okay. All right. Well, I think what we're going to do now is we'll just, it's probably good to transition uh, into, uh, into halftime. And uh, we're kind of doing it without a... Uh, without a radio check, but let's go ahead and do the music and hope it works. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Now thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation, visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore, for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry's products providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry's is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Escape go for all of the 
IQ Radio listeners might remember our next guest from our earliest days here at IAQ Radio when he was with our sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, serving as editor of that publication through 2007. In that capacity, Steve Sauer used to provide news updates for our very own program on the ins and outs of the indoor air quality world. He has since remained tangential to the building science community, and after a brief sabbatical, he took over as editor for Energy Design Update, a monthly technical newsletter about energy-efficient housing. He's here today to recap for us some of the top stories in energy efficiency. Please welcome back to the show, Steve Sauer. Steve. Hi, Cliff. How are you doing? Good, good. Welcome back, Steve. Good to have you. Well, what can you tell us? What's going on, Joe? With, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of things are you up to these days, uh, Steve? What are the headlines in the uh, let's see energy design update uh, area? Well, our uh, newsletter has a lot of focus on net energy, net zero energy homes. Um, we just published a case study done by the Sacramento Municipal Utility District in California, where they retrofitted a house to make it near zero energy. And to a large extent, they were successful as far as what they did to the home and what appliances they they put in. Uh, they were careful to use only appliances that carry the Energy Star logo. But when homeowners moved in and customized their home, they brought in some other appliances with them, like an older refrigerator for the garage uh, that wasn't energy efficient, and three LCD televisions throughout the house. And so it ended up not being as close to near zero energy as they'd hoped. But the homeowners are still saving a lot over the usual customer, typical customers out in California. And it's uh, you know, a study, of course. So there's other research ongoing, and the researchers are learning and learning from it and finding ways to improve upon what they're doing. In California, they actually have a mandate that all new residential construction uh, has to be net zero energy by the year 2020, So, which is only like nine, ten years down the road yep. that they have to be net zero. But uh, that was pretty interesting. In the newsletter, I'm also covering the federal push for a program that they've nicknamed Cash for Caulkers that would enable incentives for retrofitting homes for weatherization. Um, This could be a really lucrative program, uh, bring out some green jobs, and there would be a lot of associated energy savings uh, as well for, for customers. And much of what you do to improve the energy efficiency, of course, goes hand-in-hand to improving the home's indoor air quality as well. Um, For instance, we just covered an ASHRAE standard that's heading toward publication this year about the air tightness of HVAC equipment. Basically, this standard is a method of testing how how airtight your equipment is, your AC equipment, your furnace. And if your ductwork isn't tight, then you're bringing in polluted outdoor air into the home. The standard doesn't say anything about safe levels of indoor air, and the standard doesn't tell you how tight your equipment has to be. That's for other cognizant authorities to decide. But all the standard says is how you can test the equipment in a laboratory and come up with a number that tells you how airtight it is. And, of course, a lab test gives you completely different numbers from what you get out in the field, especially if you have a contractor installing your equipment who you know, might have dropped the furnace in on the way in the house or something like that. So a lot of factors that come into play, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. Okay. Steve, I noticed you, the the, uh, the name of the newsletter is Energy Design Update. No, no green in there. Uh, is that uh, intentional that you know of, or is that something that uh, just is, you know, we should assume this is also a green? It is, uh, it is also, uh, you know, focused on green, but uh, I'd like to emphasize that the newsletter's been around longer than that term green has been around. The, uh, the newsletter is 30 years old. It just had its 30th anniversary. I, I don't think I even mentioned it in that <laughs> issue. I just had my 30th birthday uh, recently, too, so it's, uh, it's about one month younger than I am. <laughs> Can you be green without being energy efficient? Can you be green without being energy efficient? Uh, I would say no, and uh, I would I would uh, ask that question of Joe Stebrook, and I think he'd be the first to tell me no. Gotcha. <laughs> I think Joe's pretty famous uh, on the record saying it's 
about the energy, stupid. <laughs> well, it appears you guys are uh, staying, you know, pretty close to that uh, focus. So that's that's good to hear. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to add before we get back to Mike? Yeah. Um, well, it was good uh, running into a bunch of people last month at the ASHRAE winter meeting. Um, oh, I know the acronym police are going to be after ASHRAE. <laughs> Is the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and there they are. Uh oh, I heard the sirens. <laughs> American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. They meet twice a year, once in the winter and once for their annual meeting in the summer. And uh, so it's one of a, a few conferences I plan on going to this year, but did see a lot of uh, the colleagues last month in Orlando. And it was nice of them to assemble the meeting in a hot and humid climate. It's actually pretty fitting that they did so. There's an ASHRAE. Uh, ASHRAE is co-sponsoring research right now on how to provide ventilation and dehumidification in that type of climate. Um, because as the buildings are built tighter and tighter, we do need a certain amount of fresh air changes per hour, but it needs to be conditioned for pollutants and humidity. And how do you dehumidify that outdoor air properly in a hot and humid climate? They had a, a seminar on the topic and uh, at the, at the uh, winter meeting. But then there's also ongoing research that's on track to be finalized and released later this year. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, uh, hey, Cliff, let me give you some real quick. Um, Steve gave me a great segue into something I wanted to tell listeners. At that AHR Expo, they um, surveyed the people there, and, and these are, you know, big, big people in the uh, air conditioning and heating industry, and they said uh, the best prospects for business are retrofit this year in 2010, 54%, followed by 28% maintenance, new construction, 18%, and that hospitals and healthcare is seen as the best market sector. 90% of people say they are interested in seeing products that are promoted as green or sustainable, and 97% say they're also interested in seeing products promoted as energy efficient. And it seems like from the numbers they got that the um, air conditioning people are, you know, looking at 2010 in a pretty positive light. Okay. All right. Let's go back to Mike. Thank you, Steve. Oh. Mike. Um, let's uh, let's kind of transition a little bit. Why is cleaning important? Why should we care about cleaning? Yeah, it seems like an elementary question, doesn't it? And and I think instinctively, all of us know why that's the case. But sometimes there's there's elements of cleaning that uh, that, that can kind of get past us because we don't think about that carefully. I mean, at the at the uh, most obvious level, we clean because we want, we want, like, and value the appearance, the aesthetics of a clean environment. Uh, we don't like to see uh, a dirty floor or a dirty window, or something like that. So, from that perspective, it's just, uh, just something that we like to have. Now, of course, we also know that uh, there's a there's a deeper issue, and that is that sometimes a dirty surface is going to be unsafe. And the greatest example there would be a floor that has a lot of greasy soil on it. You walk on the floor, you slip and you fall down, now you've got an injury. And there's a lot of similar examples. Uh, perhaps another uh, even more significant issue is that uh, dirt does have a very definite impact on the, the lifespan of, of a building surface. Uh, another example would be going into carpeting. If you take a look at just common soil, common uh, soil that comes in from the outside. Look at it under a microscope. It's actually very pretty. Uh, truth be told, there's a lot of little particles in there that have pretty crystal shapes. But those crystal shapes also have very, very hard edges, and they tend to slice away and to abrade the uh, material that they're on. So something like a carpeting looses its luster. Um, we, we all can point to, say, a marble floor, a polished marble floor, or a wood floor that has a very pronounced traffic pattern just based on the soil, the abrasive soil that gets tracked in all the time. So uh, cleaning also is very important in preserving and protecting a, um, uh, an environmental surface. Um, a more uh, exotic example was once when I visited 
uh, Washington, and we saw one of the original flags of our country, uh, the, the Betsy Ross flag. And there they were extremely careful about dust that was on that, on that textile because they knew how abrasive that would be. So that's another important reason. Uh, we also know that uh, a dirty environment tends to breed microorganisms. Um, when you spill coffee on the floor, um, soda on the floor, it's, it's going to attract microorganisms, it's going to attract insects, and it will attract the associated uh, pathogens that are going to come along with that. So there's a very definite safety issue involved there. And since the, the tone of, the, of this program is under air quality, certainly uh, odor is a big part of that too. When we have uh, spills of different types of soils, uh, the, the smell can be over, and anything from uh, mildly unpleasant to virtually uninhabitable. And some of those smells can simply be unpleasant. They can be downright dangerous. In the case of a, of a building that's very wet, very dirty, we're, you know, we're all aware of the fact that that generates uh, potential for mold and that we know uh, mold uh, colonies generate spores like nobody's business. And especially for people that are allergic to mold spores, it can be a pretty devastating thing. So when we think about all the different elements that we want as, as a reason for cleaning, there really are quite a few of them. And some of them are protection of property. Some of them are protection of health. Some of them are just uh, make the building nicer to be in. And perhaps the, uh, the last a really good reason to be concerned about cleaning is that it has kind of a uh, feedback effect on how people treat the building. Clearly, if a building is nice, neat, clean, uh, it tends to be treated uh, with greater care, and the maintenance ultimately becomes easier. If a building is dirty, filthy, uh, people tend not to care about it, and the building goes downhill even that much more rapidly. So a lot of different reasons to be concerned about cleaning. You know, all of our listeners have one or more cleaning products in their laundry room, under their kitchen sink, and, you know, they go through uh, the supermarket and, you know, go down the shelf and they pick a product because they like the packaging or they like the label. But what should our listeners know about the components of a typical cleaning product, Mike? Yeah, that's another good question. And in one sense, it, it doesn't have an answer because uh, – in many, in many ways, there's no real typical cleaning product because we have a lot of different soils and a lot of different surfaces. But in general, a, a, a lot of cleaning products will have some common elements. We talked a little bit about uh, synthetic detergents or surfactants a moment ago. And uh, a tremendous number of cleaning products uh, contain different types of surfactants, uh, laundry detergents or well, they have a very high percentage of surfactants in them. Uh, so there's a lot of different types of uh, surfactants. There are a lot of different types of solvents. Um, you may have uh, just plain rubbing alcohol or grain alcohol. That's used in a lot of cleaning compounds. Uh, you'll have, uh, I had mentioned the word glycol ether before, and these are organic solvents that are sort of a, a cross between rubbing alcohol and antifreeze. And they have some very nice characteristics. Uh, from a cleaning perspective, they dissolve oily soils. They, they, some of them dry very nicely, very rapidly. Um, and they're very commonly used in a lot of products. A lot of products also are going to be used in water solution. And so there'll be a series of, uh, of, of additives uh, called sequestering agents that help overcome the effects of hard water. Uh, the hard water issue is interesting because hard water quality uh, varies dramatically from one part of the country to another. Uh, for example, in the Chicago area, a lot of the Chicago area gets its uh, drinking water, uh, tap water from Lake Michigan, which is fairly soft water. But you can literally go across the street in some areas of suburban Chicago and find on the other side of the street the water source is a well where the water quality is terrible. So there's a lot of additives that are used to overcome the effects of, of the hard water. Sometimes you'll have a cleaning product that contains something fairly strongly acidic and, or something strongly alkaline because there's different types of soils. 
And this is probably one of those areas where people can make the biggest mistake in selecting cleaning products. And uh, probably an example that every one of us has seen at one time or another, especially in a public washroom. If you go into a public washroom and you look at the supply line that runs water into a toilet, uh, very often there's this kind of a greenish residue around that, that around that fitting. And typically that's because somebody has selected a bowl cleaner, usually a hydrochloric acid-based bowl cleaner, to clean not just the inside of the bowl but the outside. And now the hydrochloric acid is starting to corrode the, the plumbing. Uh, so uh, that, that's where selection uh, becomes particularly important. Beyond that, there's just a tremendous number of additives that affect things like uh, say, a bleaching ability or the viscosity, the thickness of a product. Sometimes we want a product that's very thin and runny. Sometimes we want it very thick. Sometimes we want a product that has a particular color or a particular fragrance. Some cleaning products actually have to have preservatives because uh, microorganisms will try to chew up the, uh, the components that are in there. But those are some of the major components you'll find in, in, in a lot of cleaning products. You know, uh, what you say? I'm sorry, go ahead, Cliff. Um, what I wanted to do is that in the first part of the show, Mike mentioned the term pH, and what I wanted him to do for the listeners is to, uh, you know, let's just go back there if you can kind of explain to the customers, or I'm sorry, uh, the audience, what that means. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and, and this this term pH is, is one of those that uh, the, the term itself is kind of a weird chemist creation. Uh, it's kind of complex mathematics, but in practice, it's not that difficult. pH is simply a number that relates to the amount of acid or alkali, the balance of acid and alkali that's in a water-based solution. Um, and it runs from 0 to 14. <clears throat> and what people often don't realize is that each number is actually a difference of 10. So what I mean by that is that you take something like plain water that's, that's pure, has no contaminants, and it's right in the middle, pH 7. So it has a very, very teeny trace amount of acid or alkali that's perfectly balanced. When you go from 7 to 8, the higher the number goes, the more alkaline the material is, and the, uh, the less acid there is. And so when you go from 7 to 8, it means that you've now got 10 times more alkali in a material like that than you do in plain water. When we sometimes people wonder, well, what does the word acidic or alkaline mean? Uh, acidic is probably the one that most people are familiar with uh, because we deal with a lot of acids on a daily basis. When you, um, if you were to bite on a lemon and you have that very strong, uh, acrid, uh, penetrating, uh, acidic uh, flavor, that that's what an acid is. So things like orange juice, tomato juice, uh, vinegar, hydrochloric acid. Uh, battery acid are all different types of acids. They tend to have a very low pH. And then things that are alkaline uh, have a higher pH. So things that are alkaline will be things like drain cleaner, bowl cleaner. Uh, even our blood is very, very slightly alkaline. It matches, it's about pH 7.8, and it matches the pH of seawater, interestingly. Let me clarify the, the hard and soft thing, if you would, for just a moment. The hard water versus the soft water, the, yeah. that's, that has something to do, to do also with the pH then? or uh, No, not necessarily. Um, the, the, the pH is related to the amount of acid or alkali that's present. The, the hardness of water relates to the amount of dissolved mineral that's there. Okay. And typically, um, and it sounds strange because people think, well, you know, I thought rocks don't dissolve in water very well, and they don't. But actually, um, if, if you have water in contact with uh, rocks, such as you get in well water, where you've got things like calcium and uh, magnesium salts in the rocks underground, uh, you can actually get a couple hundreds, actually about a hundred, couple hundreds or a couple thousandths of a percent of dissolved rock in the water. And that's what's meant by hard water. And even that little tiny trace of, of, of dissolved rock causes all kinds of problems in cleaning, as well as a lot of manufacturing processes. So would the type of mineral that dissolves also affect the pH? Uh, yeah, it can. It can. Um, when, you, when you have something like um, uh, carbonates, which is a very common thing, that tends to raise the pH just a little bit. Got it. Thank you. Cliff? Mm -hmm. 
Mike, um, what is a VOC, and why would a VOC be a problem indoors? Yeah, yeah. A VOC is a um, is a, an acronym. I mean, you hear you, you hear that term VOC more and more often these days. VOC simply means volatile, something that evaporates. Organic, and you know, we go back to uh, the chemist definition of organic uh, compound, and it's simply an organic material where the molecule is small enough where the material is easy to evaporate. So to use an extreme example, if you have something like uh, a plastic film, that's a very large molecule. It's too large to evaporate and form the gas. On the other hand, rubbing alcohol, uh, which everybody's familiar with, it's a small enough molecule where it evaporates fairly easily, and once that molecule gets up into the air, uh, then that's considered volatile. Now, the second part of the question is, you know, why do we get concerned about VOCs? And actually, VOCs are an issue both uh, indoor and outdoor. And um, indoor, the problem comes in that, depending on the type of material it is, uh, it, it can be, uh, for example, some VOCs, some organic uh, vapors, um, we have around us, we don't even notice it, uh, you know, the perfumes that people apply in personal cosmetics. Typically, that doesn't cause a problem. But I say typically, because we know that there are a lot of people that are very allergic to certain types of perfumes. And so that type of VOC really can be a problem for somebody. So if somebody has an allergic response to a particular VOC, uh, that can be an issue. Uh, VOCs also can react with uh, ozone, for example, and form uh, materials on the uh, surface, uh, films on the surface that are very unsightly. Uh, perhaps the, uh, the most significant example is uh, cigarette smoke, which is a VOC. And uh, in fact, I saw a very interesting article the other day that talked about how the VOCs that collect on environmental surfaces can react with other types of uh, air pollutants to form uh, yet other types of uh, fairly dangerous molecules. So on the indoor, in the indoor part, as your previous guest uh, mentioned, uh, indoor, we're running into the problem where buildings get tighter and tighter and more well sealed all the time. And a lot of times the air exchanges uh, that should be part of, a, especially of a large commercial building, aren't what they should be. And so the organic uh, content in the air just continues to build up where eventually uh, someone starts feeling uncomfortable because of it. Mike, are there any misconceptions or important misconceptions that listeners should know about cleaning products? Yeah, yeah. In, in your experience, we run into uh, certain common things. And probably um, the most significant uh, over the years has been that of concentration. Uh, most cleaning products are sold as concentrates. And so... You may have a product where the label says, well, take uh, you know one cup of this product and dissolve it into two gallons of water and then do, do your cleaning. And there's this tendency for us to think, well, if one, if one cup is good, two cups are better, so I'll use five. And you think that the cleaning is going to be either more efficient or faster. And in point of fact, you can actually make the product work worse doing that. And, you know, it's, it's estimated that probably 30% of cleaning products uh, in one way, shape, or form are, are wasted because they're used at much higher concentration than they, than they really need to be. So label directions are really important. Um, I think another misconception that people have about cleaning, is, and you know, it starts getting philosophical after a while, is the, uh, the idea that uh, something can be absolutely positively clean. Uh, cleanliness almost becomes a relative term. Uh, you know, people say, well, if I have, you know, for example, if we have something like uh, a, a building that has a mold contamination, that's obviously a cleaning problem. You've got the problem with the mold itself, which is a contaminant, the water, which is a contaminant. And people will think, well, if the mold is properly cleaned up, if the water is removed, if the surfaces in the building are now all clean and dry, when I'm all done and I do, say, a sampling of the air, I should expect to see zero uh, mold spores and, because it's been cleaned, right? Well, no, that's not true because 
there's a natural background of mold spores that are just a, a, part, a normal part of the environment. And so when people look for, say, an absolute cleanliness, um, that's that's a, another uh, another real uh, significant problem that, that people run into. And when you go to uh, try to explain to a customer uh, what you've done, it, it can be a real problem. Okay. Well, Joe, it's 12.55. I think what we should do is let's go into our roundup. Let's do that. Hang on, Mike. Okay, Joe, go ahead. Joe? Okay. Cliff, you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. Uh, Mike, I've got a couple here, but let's let's start from the, with this one here. From a chemist's standpoint, so from your you know, your position, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see um, cleaners or restorers making? Well, yeah, again we, we in the, in the last uh, question series, we, we talked about concentration. Um, I know in, in my years, uh, Service Master at Aramark before that, um, well, that, that, that was really one of the biggest things was the, the tendency to use way too high a concentration of product uh, for the intended application, and they would wonder why they would have streaking and smearing and, and people complaining about odors. Uh, that was one of them. Another is, uh, yes, it's an interesting thing about cleaners. Some people really like to play with and to experiment with the tools they have, and the chemicals are a tool. And there's this tendency to experiment with different types of chemical cleaning combinations. And some of them are are downright scary. Uh, Probably the the, the example that most cleaners are familiar with is uh, chlorine bleach, which is an excellent... uh, germ killer. It's an excellent uh, odor remover, excellent stain remover, but there are some things you can mix with bleach that cause really bad things, like if you mix it with an acid, um, you form chlorine gas, which kills you. So that, and, and people do die from that every year. So uh, the tendency not to read the label directions, to mix chemicals that should not be mixed together, um, you know, probably are the two biggest things that we run into. Okay, Mike, what tips as a chemist can you give indoor environmental professionals for dealing with indoor air quality complaints? Okay, I, I think probably the, the best thing, and it's not really a chemical issue so much, but I think the, the, the thing that people run into most of all uh, as far as indoor air quality would be airborne contaminants that, uh, that are the most common. If we think about the most common contaminants, uh, really it's, it's the dust. Uh, the dust that comes from just normal human interaction. And um, I, I think especially when we're dealing with things like oh, refinishing floors or cleaning carpets, the tendency not to use good vacuuming to remove uh, dust, to remove soil, um, it probably causes more trouble than anything else. So, you know, if, if, and it, it's, it's hard because it takes time and time takes money, but to the extent that the pre uh, the preparation of good vacuuming, good soil, good uh, particulate soil removal uh, just makes every element of the job go down so much easier. Joe, any? Well, like that, could be tied, that could be tied back into the biggest mistakes, I guess, as well. Yeah, I, I, if you don't mind, Cliff, I've got two more here. Sure, but, go ahead. Um, okay, one is I just wanted to get your comments. Um, you brought up that article, Mike, and I believe they were coining a new phrase, third-hand smoke. That's the one, third-hand smoke. Yeah. Okay, and, and that's been, you know, quite a, um, uh, a it's created quite a, a lot of uh, discussion on some of the chat rooms I'm in, and, and I'm just curious, uh, from your chemist's point of view, does, did everything within that article seem to make sense to you? Did it, you know, look like, you know, this is a, a, a significant issue that we should be paying attention to? Well, the article that I that I saw was one of these um, popular uh, summaries of, of the study, and I didn't see the original study. 
I think it goes it goes back to one of the other um, points that people get frightened about that they don't need to be. In in theory, the production of things like carcinogens from say nitrous oxide that reacts with the tobacco smoke that's sitting on the wall, in theory that could generate some carcinogenic material. The real question is how much of that is actually going to be generated and it doesn't represent a threat. And it, 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 this gets into another, uh, almost another separate question, which is the safety and is there an unsafe or a safe level of anything? Um, so because the article that I saw didn't talk about the amounts of the exposures, it's hard to say. So in theory, could it be a problem? Yes. In practice, will it be? I, I think that remains to be seen. Joe, I, I'll but, be honest with you. I was actually offended by the title of the article. And I mean, if you think oh, about really? it, yeah, if you think about it, what's firsthand smoke? I mean, we know that someone smoking a cigarette, they're inhaling it, and then they're exhaling it. And what is secondhand smoke? Someone is in the presence of someone inhaling and exhaling a cigarette. And then they call this thirdhand smoke. This has absolutely nothing to do with smoke. Smoke is the visual part of incomplete combustion. What we're talking about is a residue that's left afterwards. So I think they need to begin and get the terminology right from the very beginning before they start coining these terms, third-hand smoke and so on and so forth. And I do believe that, you know, the, the, the residue that we get, and the scary thing is that they're talking about the residue that is the same color is what someone is inhaling and exhaling. If you take a napkin or a paper towel and you put it over the mouth of someone who is exhaling cigarette smoke, you get the exact same color yellow residue that you get on these environmental surfaces. And people have a tendency to you know, think that they're different, but I, I just, I don't know, I was just so taken aback when I saw this terminology and they're running around out there with third-hand smoke and, and so on and so forth, that I think that, that they need to get the, ter the terminology right. I think the, the maybe calling it third-hand nicotine, wasn't it the nicotine they, that they considered to be the um, the chemical that yeah, was the, causing? Yeah, the nicotine was, was the one that was mentioned, Joe, and, and certainly that's, that, that's an issue. Uh, nicotine is a nitrogen-based material, and when it gets reacted with an oxidizer, it can form other nitrogenous materials that, that have been uh, linked with cancer. Um, but the thing is, with, when you get to something like cigarette smoke, the nicotine is part of it, but there are a number of other uh, heavy organic materials and tars that, uh, that will do the same. That, that will also have a similar reactivity. So that, that's what they were concerned about, is the, the downstream effect there. And because... Cigarette smoke, once it condenses on the surface, converts every surface. They, I think they were concerned because of the, uh, you know, the amount of exposure. But, again, how much of it actually then becomes airborne later on is, is you know, still somewhat open to question. And, uh, and like I said, I didn't see the amounts involved and specifically what materials they had identified. Thank you for your commentary on that. I appreciate it a few things up for me. I know that uh, you're coming back next week. Cliff, did you want to leave the um, trends for cleaning product formulations? I think what we'll do is we'll deal with it next week because, um, you know, I think we'll just do a continuation and then, you know, have Mike comment on, on that and green cleaning and other concepts. I think we have a lot more information to go over next week. Mike, before we let you go, there are two things that we always want to ask um, – our guests. I guess the first is is that is there anything that you would want to add or any questions that you thought we should have asked today that we didn't ask? Um, well, you know, the, the, I think the issue of green, uh, as you suggested, is one that uh, requires a little more explanation because there's a lot to talk about there. Um, you know, the other thing I'm 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 just kind of curious from yours and, and Joe's perspective. Uh, a question of my own is when. You run into cases where people have indoor air quality problems. Uh, you know, what would be, say, the number one or two, you know, real world uh, causes of, of indoor air quality problems? I'll go first. I think that you hit it 
on the head before when you were talking about particulate. I think that particulate is something that people generally cannot see. It's something people generally cannot smell. And I think it's out of sight and it's out of mind. And I think that it causes a lot of problems indoors. And what happens is someone will smell something, and at the same time that they were inhaling it, they were also inhaling particulate, but they don't see the particulate or feel the particulate. You know, they don't see it, and they relate any of their problems to what they smelled. So I think uh, you, you, you commented on particulate. You also commented on biologicals, and I think that people also need to look at biologicals and at particulate and not just jump to it's the chemical uh, that's making me sick. Thank you. And I, I would agree that um, particulate's a big problem and cleaning is, is oftentimes an issue. Uh, but I guess the other thing I would add is the, the problems we see with uh, building science issues and, and the fact that a lot of homes were built quickly over the last 20 years, and um, they caused more than one problem, uh, one being this huge bubble in the real estate market, but the second being that there were a lot of really poor building science. Um, uh, there were a lot of problems with the way these homes were constructed that didn't follow building science, and, and people need to you know listen to some of the old guys um, that have done this for many, many years, and and pay close attention and quit cutting corners, and uh, we could avoid a lot of problems in that way as well. Well, I have a baby brother as an architect. I'll have to ask him about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Would you mind uh, giving an email or you know whatever the best method would be to contact you? Sure. Um, my my email address is similar to yours, uh, Cliff. It's Mike K at ProRestart. Okay. All right. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank our special guest, Mike Kerner, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, Environmental Ann Koalecki, uh, Steve Sauer for filling in for Glenn Fellman, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon when we continue with our discussion with Mike Kerner for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 